morning. It is good to be with you in spirit, though not in person. That part's not good. It's still not. And we long for the day when we can be together in person and in spirit together. And until that day comes, we are grateful for technology that allows us to, uh, to worship our risen Savior together. You know, I've been thinking a lot about uh, some differences of, of epic proportions uh, between apartment living mentality and house living mentality. In fact, actually, I think there's, there's two entirely different mentalities that, that go on with those things. Uh, apartment living mentality means, well, I can put up with my noisy neighbor for a year even though the walls are thin. House living mentality means, uh, where do I want to put down roots? You know, my kids might be out of the house in a couple, day, in a couple years. Uh, do I still want to live in this neighborhood after they're gone? <clears throat> in my experience, apartment living is much more transient than house living. Uh, the propensity to know my neighbors is much greater. Uh, this past week, uh, I was even on the phone with one of my neighbors, and, and we had made plans not to sign this AEP 10-foot right-of-way on our property. Uh, we're standing together. We're not going to sign it. We don't want them to cut down our trees. I even offered a, a hand to her to support whatever she needs done. Uh, but in, in apartment living, uh, you want those upstairs neighbors who jump up and down on the floor to stop so you can finally get some sleep. And so instead of standing near them, sometimes you bang your ceiling with a broom just to let them know you're still there. At least I did. John makes a similar observation in our passage this morning. Uh, building a house has a certain type of mentality. In fact, John warns us this morning that building a house on Sin Avenue puts you in a long-term investment of remaining in sin. John warns that remaining and continuing in sin reveals what we actually love. So let's find out together exactly what he means by that. And so we are in the book of 1 John. We've been marching through it week by week. And so if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to open it up to the book of 1 John. And remember, 1 John is a letter that John wrote to these Christian churches instructing them on what the Christian life looks like. What does it look like to, to live out the Christian faith? It's one of the most beloved books of the Bible, but calls Christians to live out their love for God in their hatred of sin, and in their fierce love of other believers. And we've been working on this verse of the series uh, where we are memorizing it that will aid us in our study of the book of 1 John. And so if you uh, have that memorized, or if you have it on your lock screen, or maybe you can just see it on the the extra screen uh, next to me, let's say 1 John 3, 23 together. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Let's go to our good God in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask 
that our time in your word in 1 John uh, 3, that you would use it for our benefit, that you would use it to help us to know how to live the Christian life, and that, Lord, you would use it to transform our lives and transform our hearts for your name's sake and for your glory. Lord, would you use your word and your spirit in us this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here's what I want you to get, that if you get nothing else from the sermon this morning, that we walk away with what I think this is John's big idea from 1 John chapter 2, verse 28 through three chapter, chapter 3, verse 10. That's, that's the section we're in this morning. And here's what I think John is writing. Here, here's what we want to come away with. Don't build a house on Sin Avenue, believer, because abiding in Jesus proves our love of God. That's what I think John is talking about. Don't build a house on Sin Avenue, believer, because abiding in Jesus proves our love of God. And we're going to just look at this in two just really easy ways. We're going to look at this family resemblance in the first part of of our section, and then proof of our lives in the second half. So let me read this passage for us this morning, and then we'll dig right in. John writes, beginning in verse uh, 28 of 1 John chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Or God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. But this, it is evident. Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Well, let's look at this first part this morning, this family resemblance, chapter 2, verse 28, through chapter 3, verse 3. John continues in his 
call for Christians exactly where, he, where we left off last week. The last thing we, we read last week was for us to abide in him. And that's the first thing that John calls us to do this week in verse 28. The call is to abide. And, and John gives Christians several reasons why to abide or why to remain or why to continue in Christ. I'm not sure uh, if, if you remember uh, any first date catastrophes in your life. Uh, but do you remember going on a first date? Re- remember how nervous you were that you would mess something up or, or do something goofy or, or if you go to a restaurant that you're going to spill red sauce on your shirt, right? Uh, but by the time you've been married for 10 years, they've seen all the goofy stuff anyway and you can literally already order food for the other person at this point. See, there's great confidence the more that you're with someone. You know them, and they know you, and you trust that they're not just going to leave you by going to the bathroom and never coming back. No, but, but the longer that you are with someone, the more confidence you are with them. The same thing is true with Jesus. As we continue or abide in Jesus, it brings more confidence the more that we walk in his ways. Notice why we should abide in Jesus. Because Jesus is returning, the passage says. Jesus hasn't left us alone, but is returning for us as his bride. And so when we are living for Jesus, we have no shame. We have nothing to fear. When we are knowingly living in unrepentant sin, well, we are embarrassed, right, when the dirty laundry comes out. The return of Jesus is no joke. When Jesus returns, everyone will know, but not all will be glad. For some, it will bring tears of joy at Jesus' return. Right? Think of, think of a, a prisoner at war who's been caged up and tortured and beaten, but he hasn't given up yet. He's been imprisoned for years as a prisoner of war. And then in the wee hours of the morning, he hears these gunshots and he hears people shouting. And then all of a sudden, a group of soldiers comes in and rescues him. Oh, the the tears of joy when he thought that he had been forgotten. And then on the plane ride home, he lands and then he sees his family awaiting to welcome him home. And the tears swell up again in his eyes. It will be like that at the return of Jesus for some. But for others, Jesus' return will bring shame. Shame from rejecting the truth. Shame from rejecting Jesus as the Messiah. They're going to want to hide, hoping that they might stay safe in the shadows, but it won't work. They will want to lock their doors, go to the basement, and wait it out. But Jesus' return will be like a tornado that can't be stopped for some. That's why what we believe and its connection to how we live is, is so vital. Because we aren't playing around with theories in our heads only. No, we're talking about our lives and that we either hope in our Savior or we will cower in his return. What we do, how we live, is evidence of what we love. 
Why do we do what we do? Uh, because we want what we want or, or what we, lo- we love what we love. And what we love is displayed in how we live. That's what verse 29 talks about. Jesus' righteousness motivates us to follow him, to love what he loves, to live how Jesus lived, and to do righteousness as Jesus is righteous. Our lives matter. And so when John was writing this, in the day, false teachers were saying that their lives didn't matter. John is saying quite the opposite. Christians are called to live out what we believe. So Christians, how do our lives adorn the gospel? How should our lives better reflect the Savior who is righteous? And what happens if our lives look no different after we have met the Savior? Think of the blind men that Jesus would heal. Think of the the demon-possessed man that we read about earlier in Mark chapter 5. Think of the the man who, who couldn't walk but is healed by Jesus. Or think of any of the deaf people that Jesus healed. What would happen if any of these men had continued to live as if they were still blind or deaf or leprous or lame? What happens if after meeting Jesus, we continue to live the exact same? Well, then actually we would be hard-hearted, but we wouldn't be changed. We should abide in Jesus because God has also adopted us into his family as a demonstration of his love for us. The kind of love in 1 John 3, 1 is an adoptive love. We are called God's children. We are part of God's family. The love of God is adoption. The love of God is acceptance. The love of God is changing our family from being in fallen humanity in Adam to being in Christ and adopted into God's family. Imagine the day when finally an orphan gets a forever home. Imagine the joy when they're no longer orphans but are part of a new family. I'm not sure how much you enjoy Disney. My family loves it. Uh, I think of Peter Pan in this instance, and in particular, Peter Pan the musical. Right? There's this song that they sing that says, I won't grow up. Uh, the lost boys uh, are fearful of, of, of growing up because they're afraid they're going to lose each other. And yet, what is the one thing that these lost boys want in the story of Peter Pan? They want their moms. They want their dads. They want a family. That's what they want most of all. Right? Even when Wendy, John, and Michael go and and visit the lost boys, what do they pretend? They want Wendy to be their mother. And that they're all brothers together. God gives us what the world wants longs for. God adopts us into his family. What love God has. Notice that little phrase at the very very end of verse 1 of chapter 3. That little phrase, and so we are. Huge implications as we think about it in our lives. Uh, Because 
We are God's children now, John says. That we should be called the children of God, and so we are. See, friends, the reality is that what God declares is true. And so when we relate that to our lives, and as we think about even our own identity, that we are called the children of God, that that is true because God says it is. Do you realize that since God created the world and we are therefore what God says we are? That that might be one of the most difficult parts of life, especially these days. Where do I fit in? Who am I? Now we have people asking themselves, what am I? And yet at the foundational level of life, everyone and everything is what God declares us to be. So when God declares that we are children of God, it's true because God has declared it. So Christian, on the days when you don't feel like you are, when you are struggling, maybe to even find out who you are, know that in Christ, God declares you as his child. Even in your pain, even in your struggle, your identity is not in how you feel, but in what God declares you to be. I think this has far-reaching effects uh, and far-reaching application in our world today. Our view of gender is qualified by what God declares. Our view of married or single is qualified, not whether I feel married or single, but whether we have followed God's institution of it. That's how we view ethics. What is right isn't because of popular opinion, but because of what God declares is right or wrong. The most overriding identifying marker we have isn't in who we think we are attracted to or the type of gender we think we are, but whether we are God's. What great assurance we have that being called God's children is a picture of love for us, Christian. Christian, know the love of God because you have been adopted into God's family. What father gives his child stones when he asks for bread? What father wouldn't comfort his child in the midst of a scary storm? How often... Christian, do we miss out on God's fatherly care for us simply because we do not, because we have not asked? Remember, Christian, your identity in God as his child, his beloved child. Know God's adopting love for you in his family, Christian. Christian, when you wonder at how God could love you when you are feeling weighed down by the guilt of past sins, remember that what God declares is right and is good. And God declares us as his people through the sacrificial blood of Jesus. Remember that he who began the good work in you will be faithful to complete it. God doesn't leave a single job left unfinished. And that means that he won't leave a single one of his people behind. He won't leave a single one of his people unfinished. 
We are what God calls us. Maybe you're not a Christian and you're watching the service this morning and you're wondering, well, I wonder if that's true of me. I wonder, am I automatically part of God's family? Because the reality is that while God has made us, he does not say that just everyone by being born physically is part of God's family. And yet we can be. God calls us to be born again through Jesus, by putting our faith in Jesus. Friend, could you imagine a greater love than being adopted into a forever family? Amazingly enough, it actually does get better. The reason that God is able to declare people righteous isn't because he sweeps what they've messed up under the rug, but because God has dealt with our sin personally by going himself to the cross to die. See, Jesus, the Son of God, willingly went to the cross to die, to deal with our sin, to deal with our rebellion against God, to destroy the work of the devil that led us into sin so that we would be forgiven, so that we would be adopted into God's family. And so, my non-Christian friend, God's family is open and available to you this very moment. It's as easy as turning away from your sin and placing your trust only in Jesus' death and resurrection for your new life, for your placement in God's family. So won't you turn from your sin and become adopted into God's family today? Friends, notice what John says of God's people in verse 2 of chapter 3. It isn't simply something in the future but it's something that happens right now. We aren't a finished product yet, but yet we are identified now as God's family. God's purpose for humanity doesn't end at adoption into his family, but being transformed in Christ and into who Christ will become, who has already become. God's goal for us is to become like Christ in glory. And so our identity with God is now, but the final vision of what we will become is future. And what we will be, we will see when we see Christ in glory. What does it mean to look like how Jesus is? I think we will love as Jesus loves. I think we'll be compassionate. I think we'll be patient in the way that Jesus was compassionate and patient. We will be transformed bodily and transformed out of our sinfulness. Think about this, Christian. Every way that you struggle, every way that you are prone to temptation, you are prone to anger, every way you're prone to bitterness or anxiety or fear or even unforgiveness towards others, it will all be gone and done when we are transformed to be as he is. Can you wait for that, believer? Do you long to be rid of sin in your heart? Do you long to be pure as Jesus or do you actually just enjoy sinful habits more? Do you long to be made glorified or do you long for more time on earth? And what might that say about our desire to be transformed and to be more like Christ? John is clear. 
to see God is to be transformed. To know God isn't to stay the same, but to want to be like Christ, who himself is pure. Christ is our standard and our goal to whom we fashion our lives after. And so abiding in Christ longs to be like Christ and lives like Jesus lives and purifies himself by hoping in Christ. Purifying ourselves is what happens when we hope in Jesus. And so the call for us, Christian, don't build a house on Sin Avenue because abiding in Jesus proves our love for God. Well, let's look at the second part, verses 4 through 10. Proof of our lives. See, there was this group that left the church in John's day that he's writing to the church that stayed. But this group that left, they were saying that intellectual belief and understanding were the things that mattered. It was part of this false teaching that what you think or believe is the only thing that mattered. It didn't matter how you lived as long as you believed intellectually something. False teachers thought that knowledge was all important and how we lived was just trivial. But John seems to go out of his way here to show how our actions matter in the Christian life. Those who left the church thought that they were above accountability. But John emphasizes no one is excluded from living out what is true in their lives. What happens if we aren't practicing righteousness? Well, then we'd be practicing sinning. And, and we know sinning isn't neutral. It, it's lawless. It's against God who we have been created to know and to live for. And so in verse 5, the expressed purpose of why Jesus came was to take sin away why would we want to then live in the very thing that Jesus came to take away? That's essentially what John is saying in verse 6. John is not saying that every time I sin, I'm no longer a Christian. It's easy to, to, to misunderstand that, but, but that's not what he's saying. And I think it's also easy to water down statements like verse 6 uh, but we need to let the weight of it to fall on us. Let me read it again for us. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Well, what does John mean? John means that the Christian has no business with living in sin. John's use of this present verb in Greek, I think is helpful here. He isn't suggesting that the child of God will never commit a single act of sin. Instead, John is describing a way of life. He's describing a character. He's describing a prevailing lifestyle. The believer will not live a life characterized by sin. Remember, we need to seek God's, God's forgiveness from 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But it's also clear here in our passage that genuine believers will not live in continual sin. You might fall into the rut of sin, 
but you won't build your house there. And so John's warning to us in verse 7 is because false teachers not only condoned sinful actions, they made it seem almost virtuous in what they were doing. To play with sin as a Christian is to be deceived in what sin is. It's to be deceived in who God is and how God deals with sin. What we do matters. We cannot just have an intellectual assessment to a knowledge. We are called to live out what we believe. Think of what Jesus wrote in Matthew 7, verse 16. He says, by their fruit you will know them. What fruit? By their actions, by their lives, we will know them. And so it is not the practice of righteousness that makes the Christian righteous. It actually, the practice of of righteousness reveals the inner nature of what made us righteous in the first place, which is Jesus and is transforming us. But then there's the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin is the habitual practice of living in sin, building the house on Sin Square or on Sin Avenue. Sinning isn't of God, it's of the devil who had been sinning from the beginning, John writes. And so when we sin, we aren't mimicking our father, we're mimicking the devil, which Jesus came to destroy. That's the purpose of why Jesus came to earth, the very reason to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus came to undo all that the devil had achieved. Well, how did Jesus undo that? Well, that's at the cross and at his resurrection. That is why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. On the cross, Jesus took the full wrath of God against our rebellion, against our sin, and then defeating death on the third day, undoing what Satan had started by being raised from the dead. Since Jesus has defeated Satan, his followers are to live in Jesus' ways. And so in verse 9, John kind of turns the corner from simply the believer should not live in sin to we will, as believers, match the character of the Father because we've been born of Him. John is pointing out that being saved or being regenerated or, or being born again, all those mean the same thing, is a supernatural work of God in our lives to begin the change of transformation, for us to love as Jesus loved. You know, a lot of people really love the verses from Ephesians chapter 2, right? Verses 8 and 9, by grace you have been saved by faith. Uh, and this is not of your own doing, it is not the result of works, but is by the grace of God, right? But what many people forget is verse 10 of Ephesians 8, 9, and 10. And, and verse 10 talks about, uh, well, verses 8 and 9 is about how by grace we have been saved. But then in verse 10, we see why. And it says that the Christian was saved. We were created in God for good works. That's the very purpose of why we've been saved, is that God has created us for good works that we should walk in them. Do you notice the imagery that John uses here in in verse 9 of 1 John 3. Think about 
how a seed works and the undenying effect of a seed. So uh, the Moffats went to Aldi the other day. Well, I went to Aldi. We bought some bell peppers and we buy bell peppers virtually every week because my family eats them so much. And I saw this YouTube video uh, where you open up the bell pepper and scrape all those seeds into this little soil and then you start watering it. And so we did it. And now all of a sudden we have 40 bell pepper plants and they're growing like crazy and, and they're breaking through the ground and they're creating roots and we have no place to put them and we don't have enough pots to put these bell pepper plants in. Uh, we, it's crazy. We just stuck this core from this bell pepper and now all of a sudden we have 40 of them. The seed would do no good if it stayed the same in the ground. But instead, its effect is, is the taking root uh, and the plant that's popped out of the soil and, and we're starting to see growth and green leaves come up. See, God's seed in us works much the same way. That's why sin should be so opposite of the Christian life because we are already God's children. And so God has planted the gospel in our hearts to take root and should be popping out of the soil and we should be growing limbs and leaves and we should be bearing fruit as Christians. Which makes us wonder about the idea of cutting off sin. Christian, how radically do you think of ridding sin from your life? John has made many heavy statements here about the Christian life that is opposite to a life of sin. But Christian, do you feel as strongly? Do, do you remember Jesus' encouragements when people are struggling with sin from Matthew 5? Jesus wrote this in, in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, Tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Believer, what would change in your life if you took Jesus' words from Matthew and John's words here in 1 John 3 as seriously as they intended them? What might it say about us if we take our sin as more important than even what God's word calls us to do? I found that the Christian life it is much like other goals in life. Don't bite off more than you can chew. So working up to bigger things by many small, time, many small things over time eventually makes a big difference. And so maybe if you're wanting to finally rid sin of your life, maybe begin by even every day praying that you would hate the sin that you can't simply shake off. And then perhaps move on to sharing about it with another believer to keep you accountable and wanting to change. The words of 1 John 1 should be helpful for us and encouraging for us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins. And then this next part, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of God, which means that there is hope when we fight sin, which means that there is motivation to be rid of sin instead of to live in it. And we know there's motivation to be rid of sin because we know Christ is going to return. We know that we don't want to cower in fear and shame when he returns. We want to abide in him and remain in him and grow in Christ and then be ready and longing for the day when Christ returns. So believer, take God's word stronger than we take our sin. Then finally in verse 10, John wraps up in a nice bow for us by helping us recognize that our lives give evidence of what we truly love. Our calling as believers is to pattern our lives after the righteous one. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who came to destroy the works of the devil and the power of sin. Believers are also called to therefore love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. In fact, the test of our love of God is whether we do what is right and whether we love our brother and sister or not. That's actually evidence to know that we're not in the family of Satan, but that we are in the family of God. Love is righteousness in relationship with others. So don't build a house on Sin Avenue, believer, because abiding in Jesus proves our love of God. See, where we set our roots says so much about what we love. Remaining in sin is like building a house on Sin Avenue in Sin County. Instead, Christians are called to abide and remain in Jesus, not in sin, to build our house on the rock, Jesus, whose blood cleanses us from every sin, who is returning for his bride, whom we will become like, who has taken away our sins and has destroyed the works of the devil. We are to remain and abide in Jesus because that's where life is found. And the more we build our house on him, the more we will reflect his work in us, and the more we will then live out his righteousness and love one another. So Christian, let's do that. Let's not build our house on Sin Avenue. Let us abide in Christ and so prove that our love is of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you are righteous and we know that in and of ourselves we are not and yet we also know that Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died in our place and then rose from the grave on the third day, defeating death, destroying the works of the devil, raised for our justification so that we could find forgiveness, 
so that we would know adoption into your family, Father, so that we would then live out as Christ lived, that we would live out your righteousness, Father, and love our brothers and sisters in the Lord. God, would you help us to do that? Would you work in us all that is good and glorifying to you, that, Lord, we would live out the righteousness of the gospel seed that you have planted in us. Lord, would you do this good work? Would you help us to build a house on Christ, not a house on Sin Avenue? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. What good words of hope that we are, by God's grace and through the work of Christ, children of God, born into God's family. What a good word that is. We'll hear now our benediction from the book of Ephesians, where Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Enjoy the rest of your Lord's day.